This podcast is brought to you by Killing Time Productions. Don't forget to check out the other show on the network, The War Room, starring myself, Trevor Truitt, and Cameron Frizzell. It is now time for a brand new episode of The Ark of Rock. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to a whole new episode of the Ark of Rock. I'm your host, Jared Cornelius, rock historian, music expert, whatever you want to call me, professor of grooviness, man. I am here. I am back. I'm in my apartment as usual, right where the war room is recorded. And, um, and I realize this is my first episode since I finished up the Rolling Stones series, and you know, I'm not gonna lie, some may call it laziness, some I may, some might say that I've been gone for so long because I've been putting so much time into researching and getting this episode ready that I had to take a few months off, I mean, you know, it happens, but anyway, <laughs> a few months off, but no, um, usually I've done a couple series already, um, Today I'm going to be doing an episode, one episode over a band that was very short-lived, that uh, if you call yourself a rock fan, especially if you like classic rock, you've definitely heard of this band, and uh, if you don't already know who it is from the opening song, um, today I'm going to be going over the supergroup power trio of the 60s. The one and only Cream. Now. Oops, sorry. Excuse me. Um, like I said, this band was very short-lived. As in, they put out four albums, but they did it in a span of two years, and then they got so sick of each other that they broke up and only got together again maybe two or three times after. So, they, uh, they were not long, but... Much like with all artists that were, you know, here and then gone, they were just so. They had they left such a huge impact on not only rock music but music in general, that you know their short their short like short lifespan of a career, like it's still people still talk about them to this day for a reason. It's like Hendrix. Being a solo artist for three years, still considered the greatest of all time. But it's kind of like with Cream, because without them, um, they were the pioneers of what 
hard rock and heavy metal would become. That's right, Black Sabbath fans. I'm telling you right now, it was Cream, in my opinion, of course, and many others whose opinions matter more than you, especially if you're a Dio fan. But anyway, we won't get into that now. But um, Cream was just, uh, like I said, they were probably like, they were the first supergroup, as in, I'm not saying that there weren't bands before them that, like, didn't have multiple famous musicians in it. They weren't famous at the time. Cream, whenever whenever these three guys formed Cream, they were, like, individually successful, like, outside of it. So whenever they formed, like, it kind of made everybody go, oh, shit, what's that? Because they're British. Oh, so you well, you're getting together now, all that, you know, some, probably something like that, because, you know, Cream was, like, they get, they got big in America through the radio, but, like, you know, they were dominantly UK band, but anyway, um, let's get into it here, how shall we? They were together from 66 to 69, good years, um, that was basically the rise and fall of the hippie free love movement right there that's why like so many things that were created in that time period was like created and then destroyed in a three-year span it's incredible but anyway cream was the first rock and roll power trio it's a simple way of describing them and uh to be quite honest i don't think super groups were even a thing in the mid 60s no one knew the influence that cream would have had on the rock world not Eric Clapton, Jack Bruce, or Ginger Baker. All three of them were already widely renowned as some of the best rock musicians in the world at the time. But just as soon as the band was formed, they broke up. So how did a band so short-lived become absolute legend in the eyes of the many bands to come? Well, to understand that organism... Let's meet the three musicians that made it all possible. That's right. It's time to do a little rock star profile. Um, I know I just said it, but for those of you that didn't know, uh, the three guys that make up Cream is Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker on drums, and Jack Bruce. Now, if you remember, children, uh, if you go back to Chapter 1, I mean, sorry, Chapter 2, technically, of the Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton came up during that and with good reason because he's been involved he's like i'm telling you everybody i know if i and like like just to get off track here for a second i'm i just i need i feel like i need to apologize to anybody that's really you know been digging the podcast and everything you really wanted more content out i promise it's coming i just need a little kick in the high uh <laughs> i need a little kick in the ass because you know the ceo of the podcast Trevor Truitt, he gave me an extension and a $3,000 fine, which I'm disputing in court, but, you know, whatever. We'll handle that out after that, but, you know, I'm just letting him know that I did get the podcast done, so, and there will be more to come. But anyway, moving on. Um, we talked about Eric Clapton in the Rolling Stones series, and much like all these series, the way that I'm trying to weave it and just take some time is um, I'm going to try... To kind of plant seeds in your minds, not in a sexual way, of all these artists that you see just kind of drifting in the early days of rock, 
going forward and like seeing how it all just kind of goes together, man. It's the Ark of Rock. It's literally that's a great description of this show if you're tuning in for the first time. Anyway, moving forward, let's meet asshole number because you're gonna find out about this band going forward. These are three of the biggest divas not on reality TV ever. These guys, if you put a camera on them, it would have been like fucking Viva La Bam times 10. Because these guys were assholes. Anyway, Eric Clapton. Let's let's uh, let's read a little. Let's uh, go over Eric Clapton a little bit here, shall we? Eric Clapton has his roots deeply embedded in the foundation that is rock music. We've already briefly touched on his early days with the with the uh, blues supergroup, John Mayall and the Blues Breakers. Now let's look at his early life and the circumstances that led him to forming Cream with Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. Whenever we went over the Rolling Stones, we uh, we talked about John Mayall and the Blues Breakers quite a bit because they helped a lot of young blues and rock musicians um, get their start, really. John Mayall did, you know, fucking rock and roll salute to him. Um, Eric Clapton, which we'll get into, uh, he... Um, he is just... It's, I never really realized how important he truly is to the story of rock music because of like he's literally just like and he was there he's he was everywhere it's insane because like everything i've been reading about he's just always there even if it's like the what i'm reading up about wasn't specifically about eric clapton he was just everywhere back then but let's meet young eric clapton when as he was as a boy eric clapton was born march 30th 1945 in Ripley, Surrey, England. I think that's how they say it. To 16-year-old Patricia Molly Clapton. His father was a 25-year-old soldier. Gross. From Montreal, Quebec. Friar, I guess that was what his father's name was, um, was drafted to war before his birth, Eric's, and went back to Canada. So, Eric Clapton's parents, one was a uh, 16-year-old British girl, and the other was a uh, fully grown Canadian man that was in the service. Humped and dumped and then went back to fucking the Great White North. Moving forward. What's fucked up is Eric Clapton actually grew up believing that his grandma and her second husband, not even her first husband, her second husband, were his real parents. And that his mother was actually his older sister. Which, you know, that I'm pretty sure is the same plot to a Medea movie. I believe it is Medea's family reunion. No. It's the one where the one where the one lady dies of cancer and all of her kids like keep fucking arguing and fighting. Anyway. Very emotional movie. You should check it out. Um Years later, Eric Clapton's mother remarried and moved to Germany which she re she married a uh, soldier that was uh, about to leave town and you know going to Germany and she left Eric in Surrey England with his uh, grandparents who we thought were his fucking parents so Eric Clapton already has the makings of a blues man because he's had a tough childhood 
His mom was a 16-year-old that got knocked up by a grown man. She didn't want him. She apparently had a type. She liked soldiers. She, she latched onto the next one and jumped town and basically told her parents, Hey, Mom, I'm going to need you to take care of my child because I don't want to. So, like, he was literally born to play guitar, I think. Because, uh, you know, Jesus Christ. I mean, there's a lot of blues guys that probably can't even, like, relate to that. That's, uh, that's some fucked up circumstances. Anyway, moving forward. <laughs> Eric Clapton. I'm just going to call him Clapton from now on. I think we know him well enough by now. Clapton got his first guitar at the age of 13 and quickly found love in blues music. He learned chords by listening to blues records and practicing by ear. That's basically how I play right now because I refuse help. That's why I won't go to therapy. I, I, I don't believe in professional help. I think you should have to do everything on your own and in the hardest way possible. He even used his uh, portable Grundig reel-to-reel tape recorder using the recorders to help him improve. See, this is why guitar players were so much better back in, uh, you know, 80 years ago because they actually had to do all, like, everything. If you really wanted to be good at something, you had to be dedicated, like, have true dedication. Not like me with this podcast because if I was truly dedicated, I would have had this episode done in March or April. I don't remember the last time I did an episode. I truly don't. But anyway, um... But yeah, you know, I can't even imagine using a reel-to-reel. Like, I could use my iPhone to record me playing and then, like, you know, do that a hundred times a day. A reel-to-reel recorder? Like, you literally, like... And he was, like, doing it until he thought he sounded, like, perfect. Which I imagine is very hard to do as a young boy that's literally just basically teaching himself everything there is to know about playing guitar, which, like, some people go to school for years to learn music theory. So, you know, maybe that means I'll be one of the greats one day since I'm doing it that way. Or maybe I'm just a stubborn asshole. Anyway, moving forward. Clapton left Hollyfield School in 1961 at the age of 18 and was expelled from Kingston College... Because his uh, focus had went from, you know, obviously his studies to music, you know. He, he, that's all he could think about was playing music. Um, he had become much more advanced of a player by the age of 16. Sorry, I had my age just fucked up. He was 16. And was starting to get noticed in 1962. Clapton started performing as a duo with fellow blues enthusiast Dave Brock in pubs around Surrey. When he was 17 years old, Clapton joined his first band, The Roosters, whose other guitarist was Tom McGinnis. Tom McGinnis would go on to be in the band Manfred and Mann, who will come up again in the story. Uh, see, it's all connected, I'm telling you. Uh, he left in late 1963 and then was on a, went on a seven-gig stint with Casey Jones and the Engineers. Casey Jones and the Engineers were actually the Beatles' rival in uh the early 60s like they were always no- like they were kind of like uh, uh west man tooth from anchorman uh they were always number two to the beatles and he's very bitter about it that's most what i can tell you about casey jones he was a very bitter man because the beatles kicked his ass all the time in the in the pubs and on the charts i guess clapton's 
first big break came in October of 1963 when he joined the Yardbirds, of who he would be a member of, from 1963 to 1965. So he's getting up there. He's getting better jobs. You know what I mean? Um, the Yardbirds, they used a very specific sound of uh, like using influences from Chicago blues and uh, Clapton kind of formed his sound uh, off the styles of like signature lead guitarists such as uh, like Buddy Guy, Freddie King, and B.B. King. Um, he forged a distinctive style and quickly became one of the area's most talent, uh, most talked about artists. Um, Eric Clapton was like, they called him a god. Like, like, they, like he remembered seeing a, um, I remember reading the story, he, um, he saw, like, a piece of graffiti on a wall, and it said Clapton is God, and this just tells you how much of a fucking, you know, he can't take, one of those people that can't take a compliment so, so bad that they're an asshole, well, he, uh, <laughs> he just went on to say, you know, that it's ridiculous that anyone would say he's a guitar god, that he, he didn't think he was the greatest guitar player in the world, but he just wanted to be the greatest guitar player in the world. And I'm just like, well, buddy, if you're getting your props, it sounds like you might have accomplished something right now. I just can't take a fucking compliment. Just like a Catholic. Just like a Catholic. They can't take compliments. I know because I am one, technically. My, my dad's on my dad's side. I am. But anyway, um, just a little fun fact for you. Um, Eric Clapton would break strings during uh, live concerts with the Yardbirds. Often, I guess. And... Um, he was known, and like, because a lot of the times back then, guys wouldn't stay on stage and like restring their guitars. Well, Clapton, he would um, stay on stage and retune it, or restring it and retune it, and uh, the cloud would uh, start to do this like slow clap, like while he was doing it, like in anticipation. And uh, one of the producers in the band um, called it the slow hand. Which Eric Clapton would actually go on to name one of his albums whenever he was a solo artist later on. Uh, he got that from uh, the crowd participation aspect of him changing his string on his guitar. So, there's a little tidbit for you right there. Anyway, after two years of gaining a cult following and even managing to take a residency spot from the Rolling Stones, in 1965, the Yardbirds had their first hit song, For Your Love. And if you don't mind and indulge me, I'm going to uh, see if I can't play that for you right now. So you get an idea of what Clapton was playing early on. One sec, let me look it up here. That's right, I'm not going to edit it out. You just have to hear it. Here we go. Here's For Your Love by the Yardbirds.
So that's For Your Love by the Yardbird. So, you know, you can tell. You know, you can tell what age it's from. It's an old song, you know. So that was uh, one of their first big hits um, in 1965. Um, because, like I said, they had more of a cult following early on. And, uh, you know, they because they were playing still, obviously, like more, more or less straightforward um, blues rock. I guess, if that's what you want to call it. It wasn't exactly as uh, popular as more of the pop stuff that was going on. And so that's why, uh, right as they were leading up to this album being released, um, they decided to go with more of a pop sound, which uh, annoyed Eric Clapton because Eric Clapton was a blues man. And uh, I can understand Um if you're in a band and you're playing music you don't like, and it does not make things any easier uh, to have to go through the daily grind of all that shit. <laughs> Trust me, especially if you're playing rock music with little balls and they want to go to more of a pop sound, which that's never a good idea, going pop. It's never a good idea. So, um, because of this decision, um, Eric Clapton left the band the day before the song for Your Love was released. Um, Eric Clapton recommended Jimmy Page as his replacement, but Jimmy Page, because he respected Eric Clapton so much, decided not to do it, so they hired Jeff Beck instead. Like, look at all, listen to all these fucking names I'm mentioning right now. Like, this is just an all-star cast of, like, people casually just going in and out of bands together. It's insane to think of what all these guys are going to accomplish and are still are accomplishing. Um... In March of uh, 1966, while still a member of John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, Clapton formed a brief uh, collaboration, like collaborative unit with uh, guitarist and vocalist Steve Winwood and Jack Bruce called Eric Clapton and the Powerhouse. They only recorded a few tracks under this moniker. The group laid the foundation for two future projects. And uh, by those, I mean Cream and, of course, um, the band that... Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker would form with Steve Winwood, Blind Faith, who has one album that is just absolutely fantastic. But um, let me see if I can find some Eric Clapton in the in the powerhouse. Would you like to hear that? You would. Well, lucky for you, I've got my phone right here. They might not be because, like you know. Yep, sorry. I am sorry to waste your, uh... No, wait, nope. Yeah, I found it. Here we go. Here's, uh, Eric Clapton in the Powerhouse singing, uh, Robert Johnson's song, The Crossroads.
So that's Eric Clapton in the powerhouse. Very good. That's definitely more my speed than the Yardbirds. Um, uh, that would actually become a staple of uh, Cream as well during their live sets uh, for the rest of their shows whenever they would form um, Crossroads. Check it out. A lot of good versions. I would recommend a version of it of the song by Rush. Very good. Very different than what you're used to hearing from Rush, who we will do later down the line where we've got a while before we get the rush though so calm down prog nerds anyway uh clapton left met john may on the blues breakers in july of 1966 where he was invited by drummer ginger baker to join his new band newly formed cream Listen, I just got to be up front. I've got an immature mind. Like, I giggle in my brain every time I hear the word cream. All right, now let's time to learn about the fucking redheaded menace himself, Mr. Ginger Baker, who I believe the character uh, Mr. Hyde was created after because this guy was a fucking maniac. Anyway, Ginger Baker was a co-founder of Cream. He was one of the first superstar drummers of his time like that was you know highly renowned by his peers um he uh, used a style that blended jazz and african rhythms guy loved african uh, music and stylings that's if you listen to his music it sounds very tribal the way he plays um and he also pioneer helped pioneer jazz fusion and world music ginger baker came and went it seems in the world of music because he spent most of the 70s after uh, you know, the few bands he played in 73 and on, he was in Africa, uh, practicing and studying, uh, different African styles of music that he was interested in. So, you know, good for him. But other than that, um, he really did a lot of damage throughout the sixties as a musician. And I mean that in a good way, but he also did a lot of damage in a bad way because I'm sure he had a lot of assault charges. I don't know. Anyway, we'll hear some more about that here in a minute. Um, so, moving forward. Now, let's explore the life, the early life of Ginger Baker. His, he was born Peter Baker, not as cool, in Lewisham, South London. He was nicknamed Ginger because of his flaming red hair. And this guy is the the most ginger person of all time, opposite Carrot Top. I mean, bef maybe besides Carrot Top. Um, his father was in the, uh, I believe the Royal British Air Force. I'm not sure. Um, all I know is he was killed in the, uh, per, forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, the Dodecanese campaign in World War II. Uh, he died in 1943 in combat. Um, Ginger himself, when he was a young man, served, uh, two to three years in the Air Force. And, uh, he became, he began playing drums at age 15, um, when he was very young, he, uh, in post-World War II Britain, there was a lot of, uh, like, jazz musicians that, uh, were popping up all over the place, and, uh, he was able to learn from famous and legendary jazz drummer Phil Seaman. Now, I know some of you are laughing. There's nothing funny about a man's name. There's nothing he can do about his name, so there's no need for you to be laughing. I don't think you should be. But it is funny, Phil <laughs> Seaman. Anyway, in the 1960s, Ginger Baker joined Blues Incorporated, 
which if you remember was also another one of those bands that help a lot of young artists get their starts the alexis corners blues incorporated you know that's going to come up on the end of the year test you better remember um that's where he met bassist jack bruce and let me tell you something about the relationship before i go forward between these guys jack bruce and ginger baker do not like each other they never liked each other they always hated each other I don't even understand why they were in... They were in so many different bands together. It wasn't just Cream. It wasn't just the Alexis Corners uh, Blues Incorporated. They were in a band called BBM, which is Baker, Bruce, and Moore, which is badass. I mean, it's a three-piece with Gary Moore instead of Eric Clapton, basically. But they just could not get along. And uh, it just... It really wasn't... It wasn't a good... It was it was very toxic between the two, but they created such good music. Like they were, they're one of the best rhythm sections ever. The way they they they're just they're so heavy. Like they're aggressive, loud, heavy playing. Probably because Ginger Baker was thinking that every one of his drums or parts of his drums were Jack Bruce's face, and he was pounding them. And then Jack Bruce would actually turn up his own bass as loud as he could to piss off Ginger Baker. Like, you're, you're going to learn a lot about these two and their shenanigans. Um, they clashed often, but would again be partners in the Graham Bond organization, which is, like I said, another band that they were in together. Um, and their relationship was so volatile, Baker once attacked Jack Bruce on stage during a concert with a knife. Now, I know what you're thinking. Ginger Baker sounds like, you know, I'm I think by the end of this uh by the end of this uh episode, you're going to think that maybe Jack Bruce brought it on himself a little bit because he he kind of it seems like he's the one that kind of broke everything apart, but we're about to learn some more about him. Um but, but despite this volatile relationship and often toxic relationship and violent between Baker and Bruce, they reunited in 1966 when they formed Cream. But first, let's get into Jack Bruce himself. Um, in the early 1960s, Jack Bruce joined the Graham Bond organization where he met future bandmate Ginger Baker. After leaving GBO, that's what I'm calling it, I'm tired of these fucking four name band names, he joined John Mayall and the Blues Breakers where he met Eric Clapton, who was another future bandmate. It's almost like fate seeing. It's It really is, like, crazy that it's like fate that all three of these guys were destined to be around each other and to have eventually, like, unite and um, create something, like, amongst them. It's like fate. It really is. It's crazy to see how all this just kind of works out, even, like, with two guys who fucking hate each other. Um... We also have fate to thank for thank for the uh, you know the the union of this band because uh, God knows without the influence of these three guys on musicians all over the world and then the, the influence their music had all over the world, um, like what what it would even be like without these guys. But anyway, let's get into Jack Bruce and his early life. Um, Jack Bruce was born. May 14th, 1943, in Bishopsbrig, Lanarkshire, Scotland. We got a Scot driver. Um, his parents were Charlie and Betty Bruce, 
Apparently, Charlie and Betty were a musical bunch, and they uh, traveled frequently because of it. And uh, because of uh, their musical influence, Jack Bruce began playing jazz bass in his teens, as you do. Um, he won a scholarship, actually, to study cello and musical composition at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama while playing in Jim McCarg's Scotchville Jazz Institute. <laughs> the Jim McCarg Scottsville Jazz Band. I wrote jazz band as one word, so that's why I almost said it all as one word. Um, he did that uh, in the meantime while he was going to school on scholarship to support himself. So Jack Bruce was a very bright young lad who used his uh, intelligence to get him through life, which is good. Um, after leaving uh, school, uh, Jack Bruce toured Italy playing double bass with Murray Campbell with the Murray Campbell Big Band. Um, pretty much they played jazz music, you know, and I, I, you know, those Italians, they love jazz music and swing. Um, in 1962, that was when Bruce became a member of Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated. The, at the time, the band included organist Graham Bond, saxophonist, sax, saxophone player. I'm not a douchebag. I'm just going to say saxophone player. Dick Hextall Smith. And, and that's because his wife made him take her last name. <laughs> um, and drummer Ginger Baker. Um, in 1963, the group broke up, and Bruce went on to form the Graham Bond Quartet with Graham Bond, Ginger Baker himself, and then John McLaughlin, who I believe also played um, in the uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service. Really good band. Check them out. Um, uh, after they get rid, they pretty much shuffle John McLaugh McLaughlin out. Um, this is when Bruce switched from stand-up bass to electric bass during their session work. And, uh, that was also whenever they, uh, kind of went, um, they brought in the saxophone player, Hextall Smith, and used him with Jack Bruce switching to electric bass to kind of form a new sound, where it was more jazz fusion with a little rock in there, you know? And this is also whenever, uh, they changed the name of the Graham Bond quartet to the Grand Bond organization. Um, during the time, Bruce and Baker played together in the GBO band. They were known for their for their hostility towards each other. They would even sabotage each other's equipment and fight on stage. So I think I get I'm I'm guessing you're kind of, you know, sensing a theme here amongst these two. Um, they don't like each other, and apparently they can't even be around each other on stage during a con- They're so- I was like, like, I've been in a band where, like, I didn't like- Maybe I didn't like one of the guys in the band. I was so busy playing and focusing on myself that I wouldn't have even been able to do that, but these guys were fucking with each other while they were trying to play live. That just shows you how much they really- how much disdain they just had for each other. It's insane. Um, and it's kind of sad- that ego and pride can come between, like, just two incredible musicians to where they can't, you know, fight, settle their differences. It's crazy. Um, the, the hostility and the toxic relationship that Bruce and Baker had was so bad that Bruce left in 1965 due to his poor relationship with Ginger Baker. And, you know, you can't really blame him for that. Um, you know, getting attacked with a knife and shit. Can't have that happening. But anyway, um... 
Ginger, uh, Jack Bruce would uh, go on to release a uh, so a single that was titled. Sorry, I've got fucking indigestion or something. Um, he released his uh, solo single, um, the song "I'm Tired," which, if I can find, I will play. If I can find one, I'll play it for you. I, I realize that I'm tired of trying to make this sound like a perfect podcast. I'm just going to make you go through the pain with me. Yeah, I can't find it. Sorry. Uh, I've, you know, I, I maybe if I look up just Jack Bruce. Sometimes it does that for some reason. Who knows? By the way, Jack Bruce has some really good solo music, so... Yeah, sorry everybody, I can't find it. Anyway, um, but he like went and did some solo music after leaving the uh, Grand Bond organization, and then uh, he went. He uh, that was whenever he also joined uh, John May on the Blues Breakers uh, for a brief stint. Uh, that was whenever he first joined a band with Eric Clapton, obviously. Um, and after he left. He uh, found Bruce, uh, Jack Bruce finally found real success in a band as a member of the band Manfred and Man. Um, if you don't know who Manfred and Man is, uh, I can play a little for you right here. Um, they are known for there. It's what they were before they became Manfred Man's Earth Band, like you know the song "Blinded by the Light." Revved up like a deuce, you know, you know what I mean? You know that song. Um, good music. Uh, I, I honestly, like, whenever I started reading about this, I didn't realize Jack Bruce was ever in it. Um, but they also, uh, they, they, like I said, they changed the name. So he wasn't in Manfred Mann's Earth Band. He was a part of Manfred Mann. But anyway, um, that was also, it had, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Jack Bruce, once again, while with Manfred Mann, collaborated with Eric Clapton and the Powerhouse, which included Steve Winwood. Um, they released three tracks on their sampler album, What's Shaken. Two of the tracks were Crossroads, which we listened to, and Steppin' Out, which would both become live staples in Cream's live sets. Which, it's finally time to talk about the band of the hour. In 1966, Jack Bruce, Ginger Baker, and Eric Clapton founded the Power Trail Cream, a band that gained recognition playing blues rock and jazz-inflected rock music. That's right. As well as psychedelic... They also had psychedelic tendencies that you will see later on. They also would go on to influence an entire generation of rock bands to come. Literally right after them, they were gone like a fart in the wind. Like, you know, they literally were just here and there. You, you, you smell it and then it's gone. That's literally what they were like. But now let's get into their music, shall we? I mean, that's what you're here for. You don't want to hear about what the fuck Ginger Baker's dad did. or You don't give a fuck if he died in fucking World War II. Anyway. So the three pillars have finally come together. Let's learn about the inner workings of Cream 
and then and then get into their catalog. Let's do this shit. So obviously we've got Jack Bruce on bass. He's also the lead vocalist. We'll say that. He sang most of the songs. Got Ginger Baker, the mean red cunt on drums, <laughs> who also contributed vocals. And then you got Eric Clapton, who played guitar, and he was basically second in, on the totem pole when it came to singing songs. But mostly Eric Clapton just did a lot of blues covers. Not a lot of the songs he did were his own, unless he was singing on it as well with Jack Bruce, because Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker wrote most of the music. So it kind of makes sense as to why they would have a lot of personal differences with while well, Eric Clapton's just like, I'm just here to play guitar, yeah. You know, he's, yeah, whatever. Anyway, like I said, Jack Bruce and Ginger were the primary songwriters, and uh, they were known as one of the first supergroup. They were known as the first supergroup, excuse me, due to their individual success before forming. During their brief three-year career together, the band produced four fantastic albums. And of course, I'm talking about Fresh Cream, Disraeli Gears, Wheels of Fire, and appropriately titled Farewell Album Goodbye. Let's get into their first album, Fresh Cream. And I listened to all their music today, which I've done already, but I did it while I was writing and uh, this album is fantastic. I really, it really got a hold of me when I actually listened to it today, um, because I like I had some free time and I didn't have any distractions. I was able to actually focus on it. Um, this is also probably their best received album by critics. Like they, like the critics love this album. But anyway, Fresh Cream was released December 9th, nineteen sixty six. They had. They've, they had released I Feel Free as a single. Let's check it out. Let's listen to it. This is the first single released by Cream. Okay, so that's their single, Feel I Feel Free. Um, that's one of the better songs for me for, on the album. It's their first song on the album. Um, that was what they released first before the album actually came out. Um, and about the second song on the, on the track, another famous song from the album, uh, we have NSU. And uh, this, which was written at their very first rehearsal together. Um, this is what Jack Bruce had to say about... Uh, this song because there's a lot of controversy as to what the uh, what the abbreviation is for or the acronym is for I believe um, Jack Bruce said it was like an early punk song the title meant 
non-specific urethritis, <laughs> which is a, a venereal disease. Um, it didn't mean an NSU quickly, which was one of those little mopeds. I used to say it was about a member of the band who had this venereal disease. I can't tell you which one, except he played guitar. Now, if I'm Eric Clapton, I'm joining in with Ginger Baker the next time, like he's kicking Ginger, like uh, next time they're Ginger's kicking Jack's ass because this right here, this makes a lot of sense. I would have kicked his ass if he would have said that about me, telling everybody I've got VD. And also, even if you didn't specifically say I played guitar, like. It's one or two guys. Like, like either way, you're kind of fucking up the whole thing there. Anyway, um, Fresh Cream was ranked 102nd on the Rolling Stones list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, which is out of all three of the albums that are ranked out of their four on the top 500 list, it's their highest ranked album. Do I agree with that? No, I don't, Rolling Stone. But I get it. It's a great album. Uh, check it out. Let's listen to NSU a little bit, and then we'll check out some of the other songs before we move on. Um, here's NSU about and, uh, Eric Clapton apparently having VD. So, you know, I don't know where that in that song it sounds like, you know, he's saying Eric Clapton has VD. I think he's just a fucking asshole. That's a really good song. That's one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, they also were never short of blues covers, and it seems like they really liked Howlin' Wolf because they've got a few covers by him. Um, here's a cover of theirs of by Howlin' Wolf, who, remember, we talked about on the first episode, um, of uh, Howlin' Wolf's song Spoonful. Jack Bruce also played uh, the harmonica for Cream also. I like Howlin' Wolf's version better, but it's cool. Like, it's because they made it their own on that song. Like, that is cream. Like, that's their style. It's like sweet and sour. That's the best way for me to describe them. Um, they also were 
they also helped um they were very good like they inspired a lot of jam bands because they did like instrumental pieces that you know it's just them going off because not only are these three guys famous in their own right um they're three incredible musicians um and ginger baker being one of the more underrated drummers ever he has a very famous drum track on uh this album called toad which is an instrumental it's much like moby dick where it's him playing the drums and we're gonna listen to a little bit of it here it is Look, if I play anymore, I'm going to end up listening to the whole fucking song, and we can't do that, okay? But anyway, you get the point. Um, Ginger Baker was just an incredible, like... Oh, my gosh. I am a big fan of drummers like Ginger Baker, where his up-top work, which, I mean, what he does with his arms, is uh, parallel to his talent with his feet, if that makes any sense. Like, he was one of the first guys I know of that actually used a double bass besides um you know just the standard one drum whatever but anyway um let's uh, now move on to uh so make sure you check out that album that's fresh cream this is their debut album let's now move on to their second album which was uh one of their more well-received albums uh which not that any of them weren't um this is just one of the more influential albums of the decade. Let's just put it that way. I'm talking about Disraeli Gears, which is famous for having their most famous song, um, which was actually written after a show that Cream did at uh, with Jimi Hendrix, where they opened up for Hendrix, and they sat and watched Hendrix. And this, and they were inspired. Eric Clapton was inspired to help write this song, um, or the riff to it at least. And uh, that's where we're gonna start off to. Uh, get you into the vibe of this album here's a sunshine of your love
So yeah, that's uh, if you've played Guitar Hero three, that's probably where you know that song from. Um, just it's it. I truly is one of their best. Like it's that right there is like a true peek into the future of hard rock and heavy metal. With how heavy that fucking song is, the double bass work, uh, just the, the the heavy bass line groove that Jack Bruce is putting down. Um, let's get into the facts of Disraeli Gears. Um, it was released in November of 1967. It went number one in four countries. Finland, Sweden, uh, Sweden, Australia, and America. Um, and many people consider it one of the greatest albums ever f- for good reason. Um, and it's famous for its like really cool cover art. It's super trippy. You should go and check it out. Um, the cover art and was created by Australian artist Martin Sharp, who also uh, did their next album, Wheels on Wheels of Fire. So, if you were wondering who did that really cool piece of art for that album, um, that's to check out Martin Sharp. He did a lot of other things. He also wrote a lot of the songs. Um, he helped co-write songs for the band during studio sessions. Um, this album was much more psychedelic than their first album uh they combined you know obviously their jazz fusions and blues fusions into a more psychedelic way of you know playing which kind of calmed them down a little bit and even like it made it much more chill and so um it's like it's it's honestly that's probably why a lot of people like it. it's one of their easier albums to stomach it really is then with, with good reason um the album was so good it was actually inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in the late 90s, and it is actually ranked 112 on the Rolling Stones' 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, 10 spots lower than Fresh Cream. Now, let's listen to a few. Let's listen to a few songs off of this. Um, first song of... Um, on the album, which is one of my favorites on the album, it's called Strange Brew. Uh, very sixties vibe to it. You'll 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 know whenever I'm talking about whenever you hear it. Here we go. my god this album is so good i'm gonna end up having to listen to this again whenever we fucking get off of here um next up we have uh another classic off of this the song tales of brave ulysses which was actually helped co which was co-written by artist martin sharp Steamer to the violence of the sun. And the 
if you notice, like with a lot of this album, um, there's a lot more wah pedals. There's a lot more like that. Like I said, that psychedelic fusion they put into it that really enhances the band's playing and song crafting, in my opinion. Um, deep cuts like Outside Woman Blues are also fantastic. Here's one you may not have even heard before if you're even a fan. <laughs> playing on this band is absolute on this album i'm sorry is absolutely just fantastic but make sure you check out that album disraeli gears second album released by cream now it is time for my personal favorite album we've already played a song off of it of the of the intro which was white room make sure you check it out it's the first song on the album um we're gonna get into wheels of fire my favorite cream album it's the best in my opinion their most accomplished work to me disraeli gears it's kind of like how people feel about master of puppets and uh injustice for all i'm an injustice for all guy this is their injustice for all so wills of fire was released august 9th 1968 and it went number one in three countries and the amount of units sold made this album the first the world's first platinum selling double album it was the first double album in history in the history of the world to ever go platinum multi like multi-platinum in three different countries it was the first one to ever do that that's incredible um and it was ranked 205th on the rolling stones 500 greatest albums of all time three of their four albums were put on that list which i usually don't l agree with anything the rolling stone uh, magazine has to say but at least they uh, gave it credit where credit was due in some way. Um, let's listen to some of the album of Wheels of Fire. So we already listened to White Room. Um, like I said, Clapton was never short of blues covers on albums. And one of my favorite covers that they do, which I actually like more than the original, surprisingly, is Howling Wolf's Sitting on Top of the World. Here it is.
my gosh, so good. Um, fun. F- uh, this is uh, something that I heard from multiple um, famous musicians on podcasts. Obviously, this is where I get it from. Rudy Sarzo, I think, specifically said something about this. Um, so, if you noticed on get- Clapton's guitar sound on this, and it's a lot on this album in specific, uh, specifically, um, it's got like a buzzing sound. It's like a classic, it's a staple sound of the 60s and early 70s. Like, you hear it on records all the time. But, it, like, the guitar sounds like it's buzzing. Like the way the way that sounds, and that's because a lot of the times, whenever these bands would be recording these albums, which I haven't mentioned anything at all about the drug problems going on in this band. Eric Clapton's a dirty fucking junkie, doing everything that there is. Jack Bruce, he's drinking a lot of tea and he's smoking a lot of cigarettes and doing a lot of stuff. Ginger Baker's a heroin hound. Um, like, they recorded Disraeli Gears in four days. It took a month to record Wheels of Fire. And I'm assuming it's because of all the fucking blow and heroin they were doing. And Rudy Sarza was talking about how back in the day before re- production was as good and advanced, um, a lot of those fucking musicians would be so just blown. Like, they have so fucked up on cocaine that, uh, like, blow messes with your senses. Like, it makes your hearing and even your smell, obviously, taste. It, like, it really fucks with your senses. And a lot of the times, those art, like, music artists would uh, turn themselves up so too high because, like, they, you know, they wasn't high enough. It wasn't high enough. And a lot of the times what it would do, like, especially on, like, a guitar, it would create this buzzing sound. Like, it's, like, the sound is, like, it's more of a buzz because of how high it's turned up because they were so fucked up on blow that they turned it up so high that they accidentally created a type of sound that was actually a staple of the 60s in my opinion because you hear it all the time. Eric Clapton on this album sounds like he was fucked up out of his mind during the recording and had his guitar turned up all the way that may and that because of that if you listen Ginger and Jack's instruments are turned up equally as high like they're turned the fuck up on this album this album is one of the first heavy metal albums in my opinion or at least like precursors to it um and another song to like to uh back me up on that here's their song politician very heavy song god but ginger's bass on that is like it's it's ridiculously heavy like that shit sounds like some early shit that sabbath would have done in my opinion like musically um this song uh which is pressed rat and wart and warthog um they never played it live between the time they formed and broke up until they reunited in 2005 and uh that's what this song sounds like 
See, that to me, like, besides the heavy music behind it, that sounds something like, kind of like what Pink Floyd would do in their early days. Have kind of a talking track over music playing and everything, like, you know, who, who's to say that they didn't have a big influence on, like, early Pink Floyd. Um, and then finally, here's another, I believe a blues cover, um, Born Under a Bad Sign. The way Ginger is like, fuck, see, this is very pleasant to me because I get to hear the music directly in my headphones, so it sounds fantastic. So, like, the way Ginger is riding that fucking ride uh, symbol is, I love that, I love that shit in music. But anyway, anyway, that's Wheels of Fire. Make sure you check it out, uh, their third album. Now it's time to say goodbye to Cream, uh, as in uh, their fourth and final album. Um... The tensions between Baker and Bruce uh, led to their decision to break up, obviously, in the May, in May of 1968. Um, Clapton even considered bringing in Steve Winwood at one point to kind of, like, settle tensions or, like, kind of put a buffer between the two, and it just didn't work. Um, but luckily, they were persuaded to make one more album and uh, do a tour for it, which they decided they would only do a few weeks or a month or something like that. Um, and they ended up playing their two... Uh, final live concerts at the uh, Royal Albert Hall in London or in England and uh, well their final at the time um, and uh, Goodbye was originally supposed to be a double album but because of uh, you know pettiness and scheduling conflicts it was actually uh, it turned into a six track album that included three live tracks of uh, previous songs and then three new studio tracks um, it was released in, on February 5th, 1969, and the only country went number one, and it was in the UK, and that was the first time one of their albums actually went number one in the UK. Um, let's listen to, uh, I'm, we'll listen to a couple of the, uh, of the songs, uh, here's a live perform, uh, no, sorry, here's, uh, their song, their most, like, critically, positively received song off of their new album, uh, Badge. Here it is.
See, if you listen to that song, it's really sad that, like, these guys weren't able to, you know, squash their differences, you know what I mean? Like, find common ground, because you could see the direction that they were going into. Uh, I would have loved to have seen what they would have made in the 70s. Um, Here is another uh, song uh, off one of their studio tracks uh, called Doing That Scrapyard Thing. That song sounds very Eric Clapton to me. That I don't know what it is, but um, it's got a very Eric Clapton vibe to me. It sounds like something that would have been on his self-titled album. But anyway, uh, and then the final track for the final album released by Cream, the song What a Bring Down. So shortly after they played at the Royal Albert Hall in 1969, Cream disbanded for 25 years until they reunited in 1993 when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, They reunited the night of their induction to perform a couple songs and then uh, they decided to reunite for four shows at the royal albert hall in 2005 um they also ended up playing three shows at the madison square garden but old habits die hard and jack bruce and ginger baker just uh couldn't get along long enough to do three good shows at the madison square garden um and uh Here's actually, here's a song from their 2005, because I have the live album pulled up. Uh, here's a Born Under a Bad Sign off of their live. Oh, where the hell did it go? Uh, 
Well. Well, isn't this just a fucking kick to the nuts? I'm trying to... I was on a roll here. Born under a bad sign. I gotta put live too. I gotta put fucking live too. Jesus Christ. You know, you'd think you're paying for Wi-Fi, you get faster service than this, but you know, not me. Oh, Joe, not Jared. Jared pays too much money to have fucking good, nice fucking things. Anyway, here we go. Here's Born Under a Bad Sign, the live version from their 2005 reunion. They still sounded good, even when they were old fucks. But anyway, um, so here's a few things that they did uh, post-Cream, uh, like right after. Obviously, Eric Clapton went on to have an extremely successful solo career and even did projects with Derek and the Dominoes uh, with the late, great Dwayne Allman, R.I.P. Um, directly after Cream, Clapton and Baker went on to form Blind Faith with Steve Winwood, and they have one album out that's very good. I recommend it. Um, I imagine that, you know, <sighs> Creative Differences also tore down Blind Faith, but they're a really good band. I would I'd definitely check them out if I were you. I believe, uh, oh, I don't think I mentioned this earlier. Um, Ginger Baker may or may not have played in the band Blue Cheer, which is also another band that's known for helping to create the sound of metal we might do a side story on them someday um and unfortunately eric clapton is nowadays the sole surviving member of cream unfortunately we last we lost jack bruce in 2014 and ginger baker passed in 2019 so a reunion is unlikely <laughs> but anyway and that is the story of cream would you look at that? We came so far. Um, that's going to do it here for the uh, podcast. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. I recommend some... I would uh, recommend... I would uh, love some feedback uh, from anybody if there's any bands that you want to hear. Um, I just finished this one up, so I need to get to started on my next series. And um, I haven't quite decided who I'm going to do yet, but I promise you, I really do that I will have an episode ready for you uh, in the next week or two. So um, thank you for listening. Um, and uh, I just want to say thank you to Cream for uh, helping me, uh, for giving me some fucking content over here on the, and giving me a really interesting band to look over. Like, like please go and listen to their music. They have so much, so much good music. Um, I really can't recommend it enough because they really are fantastic and one of the most important uh, hard rock heavy metal bands of the early days so make sure you check them out um 
Uh, but anyway, you've been listening to the Ark of Rock podcast. I'm Jared Cornelius. Um, don't forget to check out. Holy shit, it's not like a monster was about to get me. Also, don't forget to check out the Ark of Rock uh, Mondays and Saturdays every week. And uh, give us a like, share, subscribe, follow on all platforms you listen to your podcasts on. And uh, I'll tune in next time for another episode of the Ark of Rock. We'll see you next time.